How are we doing today? Good, good. The one person that's good, thank you for answering my question. <laughs> the rest of you, not so good? My name's Adrian, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free. Great to be with you today. Uh, a couple other real quick updates. Um, as you leave today, greeters will have uh, little handout cards like this. These will also be available at the information table. We've been talking about how we could pursue one, pray for one this Christmas. Maybe there's someone you've had in mind in your neighborhood or your workplace, family that you'd like to invite for Christmas Eve services. We'll have three services Christmas Eve, 2 o'clock, 3.30, and 5. The 2 o'clock service is specifically directed at uh, young families. It's called Jingle Jam, and it'll be full of fun. It's similar to our family experience, though, that we have once a month, and uh, we'll have a glow stick candlelight service that night for the 2 p.m. service, and then regular candlelight services for 3.30 and 5. Then on Christmas morning, Sunday morning, we'll just have one service at 10 a.m. So uh, feel free to take one or two of those and uh, think of those that you would like to invite to Christmas Eve services. Also on your handout today, I uh, want to bring a couple things to your attention before we get started in the message. Uh, there is this little sheet that's two-sided that goes through uh, a summary of this entire series, The God That Jesus Revealed. We spent 15 weeks on this, and as a pastor, there's nothing that's more nauseating to me than spend 15 weeks preparing messages and studying together, and then just leaving that all in the rearview mirror, feeling like maybe we got inspired a little bit, but we really didn't learn much. And we know from learning science that the way we learn is through repetition. And so I strongly would encourage you to spend a little bit of time looking at, at these uh, different verses and the titles and the key ideas that, that we've set out for you. It'll help you categorize the series as a whole. And it's, it's possible there have been two or three significant learnings for you, significant takeaways. I encourage you to write on those to go back and review these series. Because again, the purpose of this series was understanding the God that Jesus revealed. That if we understand who Jesus is, we also understand who God is. And therefore, if we understand who God is, we realize that he is revealed by a by Jesus to us, and he is all of that and totally worthy of our worship, the result will be, wow, he's more beautiful than I imagined. He's more faithful than I imagined. He's more gracious than I imagined. And the result of that is we are inspired to worship more. We are inspired to trust him more. We are inspired to love him more. So I encourage you to, uh, to use that for some review. And then last thing, this is kind of a participative service today, and I want to prime the pump a little bit. I'm going to ask for you to Talk back with me in the sermon on a couple occasions. But more important than that, there's a participative service in that you have a 3 by 5 card that is attached to this series summary. And on the 3 by 5 card, there might be a single idea or a single application or prayer or verse or takeaway from this series that you would want to write down and share with our church. And after I preach, we're going to have a few microphones up here. We're going to ask that you... If you would be willing, if you would like, to come forward and share your application from this series. Again, a prayer, a takeaway, a verse that you would want to hold on to now that this series is over. You share that with everyone else in the church, and as we do, we make God more famous. It's a joy to be able to do that, to give thanks uh, for what God has, has given. In order to give opportunity for as many people as possible to share, I would encourage that if you write down a sentence or two or a verse or two, you simply read that without commentary. We only need one preach today. <laughs> you read that without commentary, and then the next person can share, and perhaps we'll hear from 10 or 15 people or, or maybe even more. 
So that's where we're going, though, this morning. With that, let's pray, and we'll open up to Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. Gracious Father in heaven, how we thank you for your great love. What a joy it is to sing of the coming of Christ this morning with these beautiful Christmas songs. We're so grateful, Lord, for this time of year that we get to celebrate Christ Jesus, our Savior, who came in a manger to show us what real life looks like and then ultimately to give us life, both for time and for eternity. We give ourselves to you this morning, God, asking that you would teach us. And I ask specifically, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, again, we will be in Matthew 16 in just a moment, but let me begin this morning's message by asking this question. If, uh, if you were to go onto campus at UNK, or even at Kearney High for that matter, and you were to do your own little informal survey and ask this one question, who do you say that Jesus is? You were to ask people, who is Jesus to you? What kind of answers might you get? This is participative time. The Son of God, some might say. What else? Savior. Any others? A good teacher? A friend? Good friend? Truth? A fairy tale? Thank you for who said that over here. A myth. Yeah, some would say a myth. What else? A wandering hippie? A great civil reformer? A public agitator? A prophet? You'd probably get all of these different answers that we heard from the audience today or from the stage. You get all these different answers to the question Who do you say that Jesus is? It's really interesting that as Jesus sets his eyes toward Jerusalem in this morning's passage, and he turns toward his primary purpose for which he has come to earth, and that splintered, rugged cross, and he's looking toward that dark day in which he will hang on that cross, he turns toward his disciples, and he says to them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? This is the question that every person needs to answer. And this morning we'll look at the question, the confession, the promise from Jesus, and the question though that we have to answer as well. Most respondents who would ask, who would be asked that question, who would you say that Jesus is? Many respondents across the centuries and different places across the world would say he was a prophet of some kind. And I'll share with you though that as a young person, that's what I was taught to believe, that he was one of many prophets, maybe like Moses or like Buddha or like Elijah, or maybe even someone like Abraham Lincoln, or Martin Luther King was kind of like a prophet. A really, really good man who sinned a little bit less than I sin, Who spoke a little bit wiser words than I could speak, but still just a man. And maybe that's where you are today with respect to Jesus. That he was a really good moral teacher, or he was a great prophet, but still just a man. And if that's where you are, we're so glad though, that you're here. We want people to be able to come here no matter where they are in their spiritual journey. And know that this is a safe place to ask questions and investigate Christ. But again, as he moves toward that dark day, he turns toward his disciples. And in verse 13 of Matthew 16, it says this. 
Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Okay, very consistent across centuries. Many people have said that. And he said to them, he turns it, and he moves from theoretical to personal. He looks his disciples in the eyes, and he says to them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And as we've talked about so many times in the series, Jesus just has this way of cutting through the weeds and getting down to brass tacks and looking people in the eyes and say, I'm not really talking about all those people anymore. I'm looking at you and I'm asking you, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Anyone ever uh, wonder what Jesus means by this term, Son of Man? Have you ever wondered that? Anyone else? See a few hands raised? Okay, the rest of you all know it. Okay, so Son of Man is this term that is regularly used by Jesus, one of his most frequent self-designations. And I've wondered many times as I read through the Gospels, why does Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man? I thought he's the Son of God. So what is it? Well, Son of Man is a term that Jesus applies to himself from the Old Testament in which many different times the prophets speak of one like a Son of Man coming. And that Son of Man was an honorific title for the great King who would come and who would reign forevermore. A good example comes from Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel is foretelling the future Messiah. And he saw in this vision, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like, what? The Son of Man. There came one like the Son of Man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and all nations and languages should serve him. And his kingdom one that should not be destroyed. So what is envisioned here is that Son of Man equals sovereign king, ruler, the one who is given dominion and authority over the nations. It's really interesting what Jesus is doing here. He's going through his own self-designation, I am the Son of Man. Then he goes to this theoretical designation, what are other people saying about me, to this very personal question, how about you disciples? Who do you say that I am? And Peter gives this mammoth confession in the moment that he is asked, who do you say that I am? Peter responds in verse 16, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To say he is the Messiah, to say he is the Christ, is to say he is the Savior. He is the one who comes to forgive and to save. He is Uh, The one who who comes to make things right again. This is the long-awaited one that we talked about last week who would come and preach good news to the poor and freedom from the captives and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what is meant when uh, Peter says, you are the Messiah. And then he goes on to say, you are the son, not of the dead God, but you're the son of the living God. And I love that Peter says that because there are so many out there who see God as one who maybe created the universe and then just stepped off the scenes. Like uh, he spoke and the universe leapt into existence and now he's just somewhere looking down at us like this, seeing if anyone's having any fun. That's not him. He is the living God. 
And Peter articulates that here. He is a living, active, faithful God who continues to be active in our world today, sustaining the world, answering prayer, involved in your life, present with us where we are. He is the son of the living God. It's quite a confession that Peter makes here. Now, in response to that confession, Jesus offers this promise, and you'll see it in verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, which just means Simon, or Peter, son of John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So Jesus is saying to Peter, this is such a glorious truth that you have stated. You couldn't have come up with it by yourself. You are blessed, Simon Peter. So much so that the Father in heaven revealed this to you, that you are able to say at this moment, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You haven't come up with this on your own. My Father has revealed it to you. And then he gives this beautiful promise, and I would articulate the promise this way. You might write this down, that Christ will build his church on this rock, and no evil will prevail against it. Let me say that again. Christ will build his church on this rock and no evil will prevail against the church. Now that begs the question for us, what is the rock? And if you've been around the block at all in the church world, you know that there's different answers to that question as to what is the rock. Our Catholic brothers and sisters over the years, over the centuries, have of course designated that rock as Peter himself. They say Peter is the rock, and on Peter, Christ would build his church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And this verse became the baseline, the foundation for the succession of popes that has occurred across the centuries. That there would be one man who led the church, and then a succession after that one man, other popes that come one after another leading the church. That Peter is that rock. That the Pope is now that rock. And with all due respect, I must humbly disagree with that. I think what Jesus is doing here instead is actually giving a wordplay of sorts. And in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, and I try not to go into the the Greek and the Hebrew language too often because I know it sometimes can be confusing. And also I want to reinforce that what we have here is extraordinarily reliable And we have great translations in English, but from time to time, there's wonderful insights from the original languages. And so when that occurs, I want to draw those out from time to time. And this is one of those, that that Jesus turns toward Peter, and he says, yes, you are Peter. And the name Peter in Greek is Petros. And the word Petros means little rock. Okay? He says, you are Peter, Petros, little rock. And then he says, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. It's a different word if you see that up on the screen. It's a different word. Petros and Petra. And on this Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell, the gates of wickedness, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And what Jesus is doing here actually is providing a word play. 
He's providing a contrast. He says, you are Peter. You are a little rock. You are a, a river rock that I got outside. You are Peter. You are a, a pebble. No offense, Peter. You're a pebble. You're a blessed pebble, and you just gave this blessed revelation. But the rock is the revelation and the confession that you just said. The rock is Petra, and Petra means rocky mountain. It means great boulder, great rocky cliff, something more like that. And so he's providing this wordplay that actually serves as a contrast between little stone and great rocky mountain. I think, well, what he's saying here is why you might be a blessed pebble, Peter. I would never build the cathedral of God on a pebble. Of course not. A pebble could not sustain 2,000 years of church history. A pebble is not strong enough to sustain the beauties and the failures of the church. No, I will sustain the church. I will build the church on this rock of a revelation, on the Petra revelation, on the confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Peter, you're just a pebble. Now, let's say this together. People are pebbles. Now this. Pastors are pebbles. Do you believe that? Popes are pebbles. We're all just pebbles. Okay, that's all we are. Uh, Pebbles could not sustain the weight of the church. And so we say collectively, no, this is Christ's church. This isn't a person's church. This isn't a pastor's church. This isn't the elder's church. This is Christ's church. And, and what, what he gives to us is this beautiful revelation that we are all to respond to him by saying, yes, it's true. You are the rock. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the one sure foundation you are the revelation. You are the king of kings and you are the Lord of lords. You are the boulder of the church. The church could never be sustained by any mere man or woman. It's sustained by the petrol revelation that you are the creator, the son of the living God, that you are the sustainer, that you are the redeemer, that you are the great mediator between God and all men, the only testimony given in its proper time, that he is the one who comes to seek and to save the lost, that he is your sure, true foundation, that he is our courage and our strength, and he is the rock of your self-worth and the rock of your identity, and there's no other place that we can go to find our foundation. Do you believe that? This is what we base our lives upon. And this is what the church must be based upon. The collective revelation of who Christ is. I, I pray that you felt that to some degree over the course of these last 15 weeks. That our God is utterly worthy of worship. That as we worship him, our strength is sustained. And our courage is emboldened. And our love for him is warmed as we see the God that Jesus revealed on the pages of Scripture. It's only this that could sustain the church across the centuries. There was an article in the newspaper, the Carney Hub, last week about how Christianity is in decline. And I've read that article about a hundred times. How about you? And it begs the question... If Christianity is in decline in the United States and in Europe, 
uh, did Jesus deliver on his promise to build the church and that the gates of hell would never prevail against it? Has he abandoned the church in some way? And I'd say to that, you need to understand that the church continues to flourish and even is gaining incredible ground in many places across the world, in many places of Asia, in India, in China, in many places of Africa, in Latin America. And I still am naive and hopeful enough, I am still hopeful enough that it can flourish once again in this land as well. As we continue to base our lives on the one true foundation, the Petra revelation that he is the Christ the son of the living God. That he would still do that, even through ordinary people like us. Now, he doesn't build it upon a person. He builds it on our collective confession. Now, I personally have a a great sense of confidence, though, that comes out of that. Because I don't know about you, when I'm a pebble, I tend to be kind of hard-headed. Anyone else? And we see here from Peter that pebbles can be hard-headed at times. Look down at verse 21. From that time, do you guys like my little rock analogies? I'm liking it, but I feel like I'm the only one. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised again. And Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned, Jesus turned, and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, can you just imagine this conversation going down? <laughs> First Peter says, oh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, oh, blessed are you, Simon Peter. And then Jesus says, uh, I'm going to suffer and die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. And suffering is coming to me. And and Peter says, I know you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I know you know all things, but you've got to be wrong on this point. And, And Jesus says, get behind me, messenger of Satan. I mean, he goes from blessed Simon Peter to messenger of Satan in the span of five verses. It's got to be some kind of record. You ever read this and you feel like this little bit of whiplash? Like, Jesus, why are you so hard on Peter? Why are you so hard on him here? I don't think he's calling him Satan. I think he's saying, what you're doing here right now is satanic. You're standing in the way of the main purpose for my coming to earth. You see, Peter in this moment was much like the Jewish leaders of the day that we talked about last week. He wasn't looking for a Messiah who would come as a sacrificial king. He wasn't necessarily looking for a Messiah who would give himself up even for the people who hated him. He was looking for a Rambo Messiah. He was looking for a Messiah who would come and kick butt and take names. And so when Jesus says that he's going to come, not as a Rambo Messiah, but as a sacrificial servant, that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They didn't come as a vengeful king, but as a sacrificial king Peter just can't make sense of that, and he says no, and he begins to rebuke him. And I think it's so important for us to meditate on that for just a moment, because if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. We can paint Jesus in our own image, and we can say, I want you to be this way, Jesus. And we can glom on for a little slice of power, instead of embracing Jesus as he is from the pages of Scripture. 
in all of his multifaceted glory, with all of his self-sacrifice and all of his kindness and love. And when we make him in our image, rather than allowing him to make us in his image and then worship him as he is, when we do that, he is saying here, you're not after the things of God. You're perverting what I have written. And that is satanic. Now what I find so amazing is in spite of all of that, Jesus still, even as he knows that Peter's going to do this, Jesus still hands over to Peter and the disciples and again all of us the keys to his church and the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Fathers in the room, have you ever handed over the keys to your car to your 16-year-old boy or girl? Was that a dangerous and scary moment? I remember vividly when my father first handed over the keys of the family car to me. And uh, we had two cars growing up, and I didn't get a car of my own, but I got to drive one of my parents' car. And one of them was an old Ford Taurus wagon, and the other one was a much older Ford cargo van. Guess which one I got? <laughs> 200,000 miles on it, and plenty of dents and rust, and had a real hard time starting in weather like this. And it was the kind of car that from time to time I would get to ride to basketball practice or get to ride to school. And I would park it about as far away as I possibly could from school lest any woman see me in that car. <laughs> I'd park it and I'd go and go get into practice. And I, I didn't want that car, but I still realized that it was a big and beautiful thing for my dad to drop those keys into my hand. Imagine what a bigger thing it is that Jesus drops the keys to his Cadillac into your and my hands. Can you believe that? I mean, he knew full well that the church would be full of beauty and full of ugly, sometimes on the same day. And he knew full well that the church would be an instrument of great help to people and also an instrument of hurting people. Sometimes on the same day. But in his love, he doesn't quit on us. In his love, he said, I'm still going to love the church in spite of all their failures, in spite of all their weaknesses. I'm still going to love the church, and I'm going to give myself for the church. I'm going to die for the church, and I'm going to entrust my beautiful organism, the church of Jesus Christ, across all the centuries to ordinary folks, not popes and elders and pastors, but ordinary folks like you and me. Can I get an amen to that? It is incredible that he does that. And so I just encourage you, if you struggle with the church, love the church. It's Christ's bride. Love the church. Things you don't like about the church, reform it from the inside, not from the outside. Love the church, serve the church, give up for the church, give to the church. It's still the bride of Christ. Now, as I close out this series, as we close out the, this morning's message, let, let's just return to that question though, that I started with. Who do you say that Jesus is? Uh, that's the key question that all of us have to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? And some say he's a prophet. Some say he's a good moral teacher. But really, he hasn't left us that option. If he was merely a prophet and said the kinds of things that he said and then backed it up from the grave by rising from the grave, then you'd have to believe everything that he said. He wouldn't be merely a prophet. He would be Lord and King. You have to take him at his word at that moment. And some of us in this room, I even fear, are sitting on the fence with respect to Jesus. 
Perhaps some of us in this room are kind of living halfway in the world of Jesus and halfway in this world. And at some point, you have to make a decision. And I pray that today would be the day that you make this decision to respond to Jesus on his terms when he comes to you and he asks, who do you say that I am? You see, the problem that every one of us face is the same. We've been created in the love of God. He's created us out of love, but all of us have failed in so many ways. Me too. We've all failed in so many ways. And that failure, those moral failures that we've had, the Bible calls sin, and it says that it separates us from God the Father. And as we are separated from God the Father, there's no way for us to work our way up the ladder and get back right with him. But God wasn't willing to lose any of us, and so he gave his one and only son to be our mediator, to be our redeemer, to pave the way between us and him that we might have new life in Christ. And that great narrative began at the manger, and it continued as Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, and he eventually said things like, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. So what are you going to do with me? And then he backed it all up by dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the grave on the third day just as he promised. And so what are you going to do with him? And I just got to tell you that if you stand before Christ, you won't be asked about all your good deeds. And they won't help you stand before him. You won't be asked about what your mother or father or best friend believed. And that won't help you either. You won't be asked about the finer points of doctrine. You won't be asked about your political beliefs. You'll be asked this question. Who did you say that Jesus was? Who do you say that I am? Is he the way, the truth, and the life for you? And I know there are so many people who say, that doesn't seem fair, Adrian, that there would be only one way. And I understand that on an emotional level that maybe it doesn't feel fair, but, but if, if he's the creator of the universe, if he's the redeemer, if he set it all in place, did he have to give us any way? Did he have to give us one way? He didn't have, us, have to give us a single way, but he chose to give us a way, and that way was Jesus. Moreover, I think we'd have to ask ourselves that if Jesus were to give us five ways, do you know people who would demand six ways? Perhaps many of us even here today would demand a sixth way. So here's the reality. God gave his all for you in his only begotten son, Jesus. And our response then is simply to turn to him in worship and to say, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God, and I trust myself to you. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Christ, that you are the Messiah, you are the Savior, the one that saved us from our sins. You're the one that restores hope when we sometimes feel so hopeless. You're the one that grants peace. You're the one that grants Emmanuel, God is indeed with us. No matter what we're going through today, we can know this truth that God is still very near to us, that he is with us. Lord Jesus, I, I got to imagine in a room this size, there are probably some who have never confessed your name. 
And right now you might be knocking on the door of their hearts, letting them know that you want them, that you long for them, that you came to earth for the very purpose of dying for their sins. And you didn't stop there. You justified our confident trust in you by defeating the grave in time and in space. This is not a myth. It happened in time and space such that we might reckon with this invitation. I pray for friends in this room that every single one of us at this moment reckon with this invitation. Who do you say that Jesus is? He loves you as you are. He invites you into his kingdom. Would you respond to him? In the name of Christ, we pray together. Amen.